I think I just was on cloud nine and, and I, I think even everyone in the room was like, oh my God, she's so excited, look at her. <laughs> so yeah, it was pretty amazing. Hello and welcome to A Country Podcast. I'm Melanie Tate. I'm a playwright and a journalist and a wannabe country practice writer. And with me, as always, is the greatest world-famous podcast producer extraordinaire, Kim Lester. Hey, Mel. Kim, hello. This is the podcast for all things a country practice. But it's so much more than that as well. We recap, we review, we remember what else was happening in Australia when the show was on our tellies. And best of all, we get to chat to the people who made it happen. And later in this episode, Kim, I'm going to get to catch up with Caroline Johansson, who played... (gasps) Donna! do that Kim which episode have you chosen at random from the ACP barrel today this is Mozart rules which is episode 61 and 62 from season 7 and I believe this is particularly important to you Melanie Tate well it is Kim because it's the one that I remember the most clearly like I remember when we had our very first preliminary conversations about making this podcast this was the first episode I just wanted to talk to you about Yeah, and I had no memories whatsoever of it. In fact, this is the year, 1987, this is the year that my family moved from Toowoomba to Rockhampton. Just a little bit of um, personal history for you there. I have this memory that when we moved up to Rockhampton, a country practice was behind in Rockhampton and there had been a significant death in Toowoomba that had not happened yet in Rockhampton. So in my memory, I went around telling everyone, hey, you know that Molly's going to die, don't you? But then I've stopped and thought about that. Molly didn't die in 1987. She died mm. in 1985. So it was probably Donna's death Yeah, that I went around telling everyone, Donna's going to die. What a little poop. <laughs> I, I feel like this death, though, is much more significant in my memory than Molly's. Like, obviously, you and I were like three or four years old when Molly died. Mm. Like, this is the big death for our generation. And you were obviously ruining lives all around Rockhampton, (laughs) telling people about it. So can you tell us about the episode, Kim? Mozart rules. Mel, it's Mozart's birthday. You bet it's Mozart's birthday. Like, can we ever forget that it's Mozart's (laughs) birthday from here on in? There's a lot happening in this episode, but two plots become intertwined at the end of the episode. So I'm just going to go through the whole recap and just bear with me, okay? It'll be worth it. So it's Mozart's birthday, and since Ben is a classical music nerd, Donna throws him a surprise party to celebrate Mozart's birthday because (laughs) why wouldn't you throw a surprise party to celebrate Mozart's birthday? (laughs) It's just so... Like, who came up with this idea in the rise room? It's like, you know what, let's throw a party for Mozart for Mozart's birthday. I think we're going to have to find out who in the team of ACP creatives was such a big Mozart fan as a child that their mother always threw a birthday party for them. Don't you reckon that that was a real story for somebody that they put into the script? It has to be because who comes into a writer's room and says, hey, I've got a great idea, let's do a Mozart's birthday party. That's so crazy. Ben likes to celebrate Mozart's birthday every year. Well, you know how in a classical music he is and Mozart's pretty famous. Elton John likes him. Have you ever listened to him? No, he puts me to sleep. Oh, well, I feel sorry for him. It's Ben's favourite composer and he has to celebrate it with the chooks. Meanwhile, local farmer, 
and single dad, Dan Richards, is struggling to make ends meet, so he starts driving trucks to earn extra money. This is Penny's dad, by the way. I think we all remember young blonde Penny. She she was sort of the the darling child who came into the show after Chloe left. Because I think you always need a darling child in the show. Yeah, and she was sort of contemporary to us, Kim, but Mm. not. Like, I remember thinking that she felt older than us. She was probably our age at this time. So all of this extra work that Dan is doing, it's damaging his health and it's damaging his relationship with Penny. He takes a job driving drums to Queensland despite his exhaustion. And since Alex, Dr. Alex, who is Penny's uh, godmother, refuses to look after Penny again, and she only refuses because she's worried about him, he instead takes Penny with him. The drums, what you need to know is that they're labelled mineral oil. However, they're actually a highly flammable gas, <gasps> mislabeled. Oh, my God. So you know that something bad is going to happen. There are so many bad things about to happen. Meanwhile, Donna borrows a car to pick up a cake, the cake, for mm. Ben's birthday party. What did the cake look like, Mel? It looked like a um, women's weekly birthday cake, piano cake on speed. <laughs> It was like a, it was like your grandma didn't make it, but an actual professional baker did. So she picks up the birthday party cake and then she gets in the car, but she can't get the seatbelt on. And mm. so she just says, you know what? It's 1987. Stuff it. I don't care about seatbelts. Mm. So I think we can guess what's about to happen. We should also point out that for the sake and the safety of the cake... That the cake's not in a box. It's not in a bit of Tupperware. It's like just sitting on the seat without a seatbelt. Is it cling wrapped? It's not even cling wrapped. (laughs) It's just sitting on the seat wanting me to eat it. That's all. That's all it's doing. It's just suggesting chocolate cake to all of us. Moments later. Oh, gosh. I know. Moments later, a drunk driver, and that's a whole other storyline. I'm not even going to get into it. There's a drunk driver. We know where he came from. It's Mm -hmm. in the episode. Moments later, a drunk driver swerves into the opposite lane, causing Dan, who's on the road with the truck with the mislabeled flammable goods, to swerve at a T-section and he hits Donna. The drunk driver leaves unscathed. He's not even in the accident, but Donna is killed instantly. And then Dan and Penny are trapped in the car and the drums are leaking highly flammable gas all over the accident oh site. God. So that's that's just episode one. Basically all of that just happened in the first episode. The second episode is all about the rescue effort. There's some, there's some good acting from Josephine Mitchell playing a devastated Joe. Yes. And also Ben is devastated, you know, yes. because he realised that he was – in love with Donna. That's letting right. Us, yeah, letting us all know that actually if we love somebody, Kim, we've just got to tell them because they could be taken out who knows when. I can't believe she's dead. She was She's always so... I've, uh, I've never met anyone like her before. She, she just <laughs> bounced into my life and so much energy and, and there's never been a dull moment since. So what are your main takeaways, Mel? My main takeaways are that I had remembered it almost perfectly from when I was seven years old, which we were both shocked by because before seeing the episode, I had said to Kim, oh, Kim, I remember little Penny's eyes in the, in the you know, after the accident. I remember this, that and the other. Anyway, I remembered it all. And I said, so I think there was this whacked birthday party with a, for Mozart with a piano cake. Anyway, 
I think my entire life I've been searching for a man who would have a birthday party for Mozart ever since, Kim. I'm That's one takeaway. But my serious takeaway from this episode is just hearing you recount the story then and all the stakes in this. Mm. I feel like this is peak a country practice. I think this is a really good couple of episodes because nothing is unearned in this. So we've got, you know, these three cars coming together and all these lives being shattered as a result of this brief moment. And it's all kind of earned. It's not lazy storytelling in no. any of the ways. No, there is a plot leading up to every aspect of that situation. And like I said, I left out the whole plot leading up to the drunk driver, but that was mm. introduced very early on. Yeah. And we saw his journey from yeah. being at the pub and why he was at the pub to getting behind the wheel of that car. Yeah. And also I think the really amazing thing about this uh, death is that uh, it came from nowhere and it mm. apparently came from nowhere for viewers. Caroline Johansson, who's going to be on with us a little bit later, who played Donna Manning, uh, had to keep it all hush-hush. You know, it was very, very quiet and sudden and came out of nowhere. And I wonder if that's where its power is, why I've remembered it so long, because we must have all just thought it was just a normal country practice night sitting mm. watching it as a family and then suddenly there's no strudel or party, there's Donna on a bloody morgue table. Yeah. Um, what about you, Kim? Well, the thing about that sudden impact of it is that's kind of what happens in a real car accident, mm. isn't it? Like you don't get months of advance warning that someone you love is going to die in a car yeah. accident and that's the striking thing to me. What's possibly one regrettable thing about that first episode is because we were saying how all of the plots kind of lead up to this point of impact of the car mm -hmm. accident, except there's a D plot, I guess you could call it, where Kathy, the park oh, ranger, yeah, yeah. has a runaway in her house. And this is kind of the formula of a country practice is that there are several plots going on in every episode that really have nothing to do with each other. Mm. They don't really overlap. I guess we've reached a point in television viewing now where we have this expectation that everything should mean something yeah, fit, to the yeah. overall arc of the story. Yeah, and that story and doesn't. that is just really out of place. I mean, it's a, it's a touching story. Maybe it's a red herring though. Maybe. You know, maybe it's a deliberate red herring for us to feel like we're in a comfortable, normal episode. Yeah. You know, and we're not. Yeah. The thing for maybe. me, Kim, about the episode that is – you know, left behind is that no one ever gets that cake and eats it. <laughs> like, was it just left in the car to rot? It was so beautiful. And what would it be like asking, you know, cleaning out the car and then saying, but what are we going to do with the cake? <laughs> <laughs> also, we should point out too, just one other thing about that is we get to see Alex and Terence work really beautifully together. They're not together at this stage. They're not yes. a couple. Their chemistry is just fantastic, isn't it? How can I tell her, Terence? How can you tell me? Oh, I'm sorry, because I haven't got a clue. I'm sorry. It's all right. It's all right. So, Kim, shall we delve into what was going on in 1987 in Australia? when this went to air? Yeah, so these episodes went to air, according to IMDb, they went to air the week of the 17th of August, 1987. And it, it really took me back to those 
massive driver safety campaigns from the 80s and 90s. Do you remember them? Yeah, yeah. I just I just remember them being a very big part of my TV viewing. And it was before mobile phones, so it was the big four killers on the road were speed, drink driving, fatigue, and not wearing a seatbelt. And I think that all four, maybe three of those played a part in killing Donna. They're all there. Donna was not wearing a seatbelt. Yep. There was a drink driver. Yep. And there's fatigue. Dan was very fatigued. Yeah. I don't know if anyone was speeding. So more on that in a moment. We're going to talk about those driver safety campaigns and a little bit about the history of them. But let's have a little trip down the 1987 memory lane, shall we? Please. In February, the first mobile telephone call was made in Australia. Wow. Do you know what the telephone number was? Oh four oh five. Well, I, my dad. I can remember my dad's first mobile number it was oh one eight four hundred one seven eight. I can definitely still remember my parents' phone number, but that's still their phone number, so I won't say it. <laughs> in June, mm-hmm. Margaret Thatcher and the Tories won a third term in the UK general election, and Bob Hawke made his promise that no child will be living in poverty by the year nineteen ninety. Bless him. And then two major news events happened in August in the week before that episode went to air. One was the Hoddle Street Massacre. Do you know about the Hoddle Street Massacre? Well, I know the name, but I don't don't really know anything about it. So on the 9th of August, 1987, a 19-year-old Julian Knight killed seven people in a mass shooting on Melbourne's Hoddle Street. And basically he stood on the nature strip and opened fire on cars driving past. Just hideous. And on the 14th of August, there was a raid on a rural property in Lake Eildon in Victoria by the Santinikitan Park Association. And if that name doesn't ring a bell, you might know them as the cult, the family. Oh, yeah. Were they, were they the ones that all dyed their hair blonde? Yes. They had those really creepy white bobs. And there was a doco about them on ABC last year. So as a result of that raid, all of the children were released. Um So in that last week of 1987, and in fact, for seven weeks running, have a guess what was number one on the music charts. You know what? I'm going to guess The Locomotion by Kylie Minogue because I feel like... Everybody's doing a brand (laughs) new dance now. It's it's literally, Kim, (laughs) the only song I think that I remember being number one in the 80s. I remember that my sisters and I performed it at a neighbourhood concert that we put on for our new neighbours in Rockhampton. The Lesters are here. Yep. Welcome. (laughs) Don't you know you have to all pay attention to us all the time? (laughs) Uh, And I think we probably charged them a cover charge. Wow. That's amazing. So let's talk about road safety. I think the campaigns that I remember most um, are if you drink and drive, you're a bloody idiot. Mm -hmm. And click, clack, front and back. Yes. As well. Yep. A lot of these campaigns were created by various state transport safety commissions, and this is the Victorian version. The Transport Accident Commission has been the most successful in terms of reduction in road deaths. So let's just focus on them for a moment. So the TAC was established on the 1st of January 1987 as a result of the 1986 Transport Accident Act. The commission was mainly set up as a compensation scheme, but one of its other goals was to, quote, upset, outrage and appall Victorians to reduce the number of road deaths by creating driver safety campaigns, a lot of which were televised nationally. The first one went to air on the 10th of December 1989. 
And, oh man, I put myself through the horror of watching a YouTube video called 20 Years of TAC Advertising. Oh, Everybody Hurts. Gosh. And it is basically a compilation of their advertisements to the song Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. Mm. And it's harrowing. It is like- Just people <laughs> like being crashed into and flying out of cars and stuff. Yeah, it's really, really graphic. There are moments where I thought, are these scenes from real car accidents? Because that was horrifying. Obviously, they're not because, mm. you know, you don't get well-composed footage of sudden car accidents. Like, that just doesn't happen. But, my goodness, they are so realistic looking. And I wonder whether they have numbers on whether those ads actually made a difference. Yeah. Surely they can quantify somehow. Yeah, they do. And they and I'll get to that. I've got some numbers for you. I guess the thing to remember is part of it, I mean, it's not entirely from the safety campaigns. Obviously, cars have gotten safer, roads have gotten safer. A lot has changed since we were driving cars in the 1980s, but I will give you some numbers in a minute. And then the other one that was really, really effective was random breath testing. So this was a massive change. And uh, I've heard this mentioned in a few different A Country Practice episodes as well, in that overt educational way that A Country Practice does, where they say, this is a thing that's now part of our society, let's discuss it. Mm -hmm. And it was random breath testing. Victoria was the first state to implement RBTs in 1976, and they came into effect in New South Wales in 1982. Uh, I found a paper by the Australian Institute of Criminology which looked at the history and effectiveness of RBTs. One example that they cited is that in New South Wales, the introduction of RBTs in 1982 led to an initial 48% reduction in fatal crashes over a a four-and-a-half-month period and an average 15% reduction in fatal crashes over the subsequent 10-year period. Wow. Can I just tell you a a funny story? Please. RBTs in this, in amongst this very serious. So when I was a kid, there were two campaigns on TV that I remember quite well. One was about RBTs. And then there was another one was Flo Bjorki-Peterson. Mm-hmm. Wife of Joe, the Premier of Queensland. Wife of controversial Premier of Queensland, Joe Bjorki-Peterson. And it was a campaign about women getting pap smears. So one night we were in the car We could see an RBT up ahead and I said, hey, mum, the police are doing random pap smears. (laughs) Oh, the power of the PSA. See, this is the thing. Kim, you remember all these PSAs, but you don't remember Donna hanging dead out the back of a a station wagon. No, clearly mine needs a certain kind of communication (laughs) that is much more overt. And just finally, on those stats, the peak of national road fatalities was 3,798 in 1970, Mm. and the record low since then was in 2017 with 1,225. So massive reduction. It would be so interesting to know those what those numbers would be nowadays if there was no such thing as mobile phones. Mm. Kim, it's time for a little break in transmission, but before we do, did you happen to notice a very, very famous face in this episode? No. No, exactly. Um, (laughs) Hang on. Was it Nicole Mary Kidman? No. Was she back? No, I'm going to tell you in just a sec. Hey, 
Hey, Mel. Hey, Kim. If you like our conversations about the social politics of a country practices stories. Kim, I love our conversations about the social politics of a country practices stories. Well, there's another podcast doing a much deeper dive into the big social issues impacting Australia right now. Diving deeper than Ask Kim, how on earth can that be? It's called Seriously Social. It's made by the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia and each week, journalist Ginger Gorman uses the lens of the social sciences to consider all kinds of aspects of Australian society like workplaces, relationships, mental health services, the economy and higher education. It sounds extremely interesting, Kim, but it also sounds kind of serious, but good serious. Well, yeah, it is serious. It's seriously social. (laughs) But honestly, Ginger has spoken to some of Australia's top experts like Patrick McGorry, Fiona Stanley, Ian Hickey, Jane Perkis and Alan Fells. And the interviews are thoughtful and informative and really interesting. Kim, you sound like you love this podcast so much you should go and work on it. Well, actually, I probably should mention that I already do work on it. (laughs) I am the editor, but it's a highlight, honestly, for me each week because it helps me understand where we've been and where we're going as a society. I'm so in, Kim. How can we listen to it? It's on all the podcast platforms that we're on. So just search for Seriously Social and subscribe now. I can't wait. All right, the famous face. I'm actually going to kick off with the famous face because he's so blink and you'll miss. In fact, I've watched this episode twice now and I can't make him out. I don't even know if we just see the back of him, but he's definitely in the credits. And it's the son of a working class family in what's now Sydney's inner west. I, You know, I feel like a fan tale or you know what else I feel like when I'm telling you the ones before I've told you their name is I feel like sale of the century. Who am I? Questions. Yes. <laughs> Do you remember those? Yes. I could always, I was, I prided myself on being able to get those really, really early. And, and I don't know if I still would be able to, but I'm going to give you a, who am I, Kim? I was born the son of a big working class family in what's now Sydney's inner west. I graduated from Theatre and Appeon in 1987. And this is one of my three appearances on A Country Practice, all as different characters. I ended up having my big break in a film called Cozzy in 1996. And then I went on to be in a show called Sea Change as the heartthrob diver Dan. I've since gone on to be one of Australia's busiest actors. I am, of course. Is it? Richard Roxburgh. (laughs) (laughs) It's David Wenham, Kim. It's David Wenham. You're close. He is ambulance driver number one. (laughs) I haven't been able to find him. I I feel like he was cut, but he still got Mm. the credit, which good on him because I would imagine as a young actor, that's what you need. Now, speaking of credits though, Kim, I would like to go to an actor who is so highly credited that he might actually be one of the most highly credited actors ever on a country practice. And that's Tom Richards. Now, Tom Richards plays the part of the drunken disengaged farmer who causes the accident that you've just been talking about, Mm -hmm. uh, who's at the pub, gets um, on the pish and then gets in his car and causes this. Now, he's called Ron Kelly as this character, but he actually appears in 10 A Country Practice episode 6 as this Ron Kelly character. But interestingly, he's in the very first and second episodes of A Country Practice ever, Kim. Yes. Season 1, 1 and 2, which we'll talk about in time, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about who he plays, but he was in the very first couple of episodes. 
Um, what's really interesting about Tom is he's one of those actors whose face you know, you know, when you look back at his IMDb, his career was really, really impressive. You name the TV show in the 70s, 80s and 90s and he's been on it. He was David Palmer of the Palmer family on Sons and Daughters, which will mean a lot to people, I think, who are maybe 10, 15 years older than us. Yeah, that one passed me by. Me too. Well, I can remember some of it. I can remember Pat the Rat and I can remember uh, – would you like me to sing the song for you? Yeah. Sons and daughters, tears and laughter, something, something and happiness. See, I've watched it enough to be able to – we can find it, the sons and daughters. Wow. Yeah, da, da, da. <laughs> That's like singing the second <laughs> verse of the national anthem. <laughs> I really loved it. Anyway, Tom Richards, get this. He played David Palmer in Sons and Daughters for 856 episodes, Kim, from 1982 to 1987. So we thought that country practice was prolific in its output. Sons and Daughters was like on speed by comparison. So that would have made him a huge star at the time in Australia. It really is interesting about our industry, isn't it, that somebody can be have a face that's that well known and then we don't see them doing stuff for the last few years. Is he retirement age? Yes, he's in his 70s now. Yeah, because you kind of don't think of actors retiring in the same way no. that you think of, like, you know, bankers retiring. No, and I think I always feel for them too because I, they so often live job to job. Mm. I don't imagine they've got great super and all that kind of stuff. I'd love to know if there's another similarly sized market that has a really good model for looking after its actors. I'll bet in Europe they do. I bet the Scandinavians look yeah, after their actors. absolutely. Do you know who we could ask is somebody from the Swedish East Street. <laughs> called Westerdijk, wasn't it? it was somebody from that. Westerdijk. <laughs> and so that's who, that's some of the amazing people that were on Mozart Rules 1 and 2, Kim. On that note, should we meet one of the other amazing people? That was on Mozart Rules, Donna. Yes, Donna lives. I'm Caroline Johansson. I played Donna Manning in a country practice. I was very young when I started a country practice. I had moved from Melbourne to Sydney and I'd actually been working with a dance company, um, a trained dancer, and, but I had an agent and I had started to audition and done a couple of ads and really this was my first big break. What was that audition process like for a country practice? Uh, well, I, <laughs> my agent sent me the script. Um, I learned a couple of scenes of Donna and it just it, – look, it was just one of those characters that I went, okay, yes, I, I know who this is. This is my kind of girl. And so, yeah, I, I went and did the audition uh, at the ACP head office. Uh, then my agent called and I thought he was calling me to say I'd been on a short list or, mm-hmm. you know, it was a callback or something. And they said, oh, they want to see you again. And when I went into the office, they offered me the job. <laughs> so I was, it was, yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. Just couldn't believe my luck. What is it like as a young actor who had been dancing before to get that call up? Because that was sort of peak country practice it was yeah yeah and I had watched you know country practice uh I cried when Molly died and you know I'd I'd, you know watched lots and lots of episodes of it so yes I and it was a really big deal um 
I think I just was on cloud nine and, and I, I think even everyone in the room was like, oh, my God, she's so excited. Look at her. <laughs> so, yeah, it was pretty amazing. It's actually very Donna too to be so excited. I'm sure they were so happy. What did you enjoy about the set itself? Oh, a lot of things really. The the cast were became like a family. Uh, even the crew were like a family. We all just got along really well. But also I think being out in the Australian bush was was lovely too, uh, where we shot around Windsor and just being around horses and, and just those beautiful idyllic places. What was the relationship between writers and actors? Did you have much to do with each other? Not a lot. Occasionally, maybe once every few months, we, we might have the opportunity to go into the office and meet the writers mm-hmm. as, they were, as they were plotting. That was really nice to have that opportunity and to kind of see you know, they'd have a big whiteboard and you'd see, you know, things that were coming up and go, oh, okay, so that's all. That's the way they're thinking. The only input I remember having was that I said, look, I can ride a horse. I grew up riding horses. If you want to bring in somewhere where, you know, Donna rides a horse. And so they did. So they actually invented this whole storyline about she she rescues this old racehorse called Beans. Oh, great. <laughs> And Beans becomes her pet horse and so she starts riding the horse to work and, you know, Beans eats the daffodils or something, you know, outside outside the hospital matron gets really upset and, you know, things like that, you know, funny little <laughs> stuff like that. We were looking at uh, Molly and Donna and Georgie Parker's character Lucy yeah. and thinking about how they really cut from the same cloth and we wondered whether, you know, they're actually created to break Australia's hearts, you know, to... <laughs> <laughs> to be killed off in Aww. some way that's going to shock us all. Yeah. Was was that the plan with Donna from the get-go? No, never. No, no, it wasn't at all. all right, it's, it's really interesting you, you draw that analogy because I hadn't actually thought about it that way. I mean, I, I can certainly see the, the similarities between the three characters. When it came to Donna leaving, originally we, we thought it was going to be a romance, you know, <laughs> and she'd leave. Then one day the, the producers called me in and said, oh, you know, just need to have a little chat. And so they broke it to me that they decided to to kill her off and, and oh, you know, Donna's going to die in a tragic accident. And I was like, oh, okay. I uh, didn't see that coming. Um, yeah, so that was very dramatic. Had you said to them, I, you know, I want, I want to wrap up, I want to move on and do other things or I want to break for a few years? I had like sort of big picture plans of wanting to study acting because I'd never had any formal right. training. I'd come from a bit of amateur theatre and, uh, you know, and, and being a dancer mm-hmm. uh, and, and doing some commercials. So I had always planned uh, to go and study properly mm-hmm. and formally and I had a sort of big picture plans to go to New York. There's lots of really great acting schools there. So that was sort of, a you know, a long plan. Uh, and then, you know, contracts were, were coming to an end and, you know, they, they were sort of doing a bit of a changing of the guard mm-hmm. uh, in, in the series anyway. And so it was really more a conversation. We're, we're thinking of moving Donna on, you know, and, and I said, look, I'm, I'm okay with that because I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I might be time to, to go and study. What was it like shooting that, those last two, well, the last episode that you're in because it's so joyful until it's not. Yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't as hard on me as some of the other actors, I have to say. It was uh, poor Josephine had to do so all those crying scenes. Uh, in fact, yeah, pretty much everyone had to do crying scenes except me, so it was actually pretty easy. <laughs> um, when it actually, I mean, you must have had to have kept Storm. Yes. Yeah, well, because it was a, it was a shock for everybody. Yeah. That's the thing, like, you know, as you said, Molly's was this sort of drawn-out death that 
the public and fans could could get themselves ready for yeah. in a way, whereas Donna's death was just completely out yeah, of the blue. And I'm amazed at actually they kept a lid on it. That That's really amazing because I was, you know, mm. long gone. I was in New York by then. I was, you know, enrolled and I was I was studying acting and so, you know, I had this whole new life. And, yeah, it was, it was about I think three months uh, after we'd shot. Mm-hmm. I was over there and then I did get some, f- you know, feedback about, oh, all the magazines were running stories about uh-huh. it uh, and, you know, my my, fa- you know, my family saw it and they found it pretty upsetting. I'll bet. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so I kind of missed all the fuss, to be honest. And what is life like, you know, to go from being on this, uh, you know, much-loved show that everybody sat down and watched twice a week yeah. to being in a big huge anonymous city yeah. like New York. New York's fantastic. I, I spent two years I, I originally planned to go for six months uh, and then I realized after six months of acting school that I'd barely touched the surface and I really needed to stay on. So so then it got a little bit hairy because I, I had to try and find a way to make some money and to extend my visa and I kind of had a love-hate relationship with New York because it wasn't like here where I could just probably step into another acting job. It was it was really hard slog. I was waiting tables. I was living in, you know, sublets and, and you know, struggling in the bitter winter, you know, without a winter coat. And, you know, it was, like, it was pretty, you know, you can kind of do that in your early 20s. You can kind of live in a garret and, and survive and be an artist. You know, I did eventually manage to get a working visa and I was able to do a bit of sort of photographic model and some ads and I got a manager and then I went out to LA and LA just completely did my head in because I just I don't think I was ready I love it now I just I couldn't deal with it in my early 20s so I I eventually came back to Australia and how did you find Australia after you know you're coming back armed with this training Mm -hmm. and having this this history of being on a country practice how did the industry uh greet you when you came back yeah it was kind of twofold I I managed to get a really good agent so so that was good the only thing I would say I was I was like 25 when I came back Mm -hmm. and suddenly I was going for mother roles that is insane (laughs) it's like I wasn't an ingenue anymore suddenly I was going for like mums I'm like really They like they age you so quickly, and and you know, and and I'd get things like you know you can't we can't really send you for home and away anymore because they only want eighteen year olds. Um, so, <laughs> so insane. Yeah. This industry is so insane, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So that was interesting, but uh, fortunately, I I landed a, a really great job with Theatre South mm-hmm. uh, not long after I got back, and that became like a like an ensemble company, and so yeah. I worked with them on and off for about three years. And so over time, you've been uh, a team teacher and also you've moved into writing now yes yes. do you still act as well not really no I yeah so in addition to uh, or really sort of post theatre south uh, I started to teach in various acting schools and also direct some student productions and while I was working and in the middle of that did an arts degree as well at university but while I was working at the acting schools most of them had a kind of an open door policy where they knew you were a working actor so if you needed to reschedule a class or you needed to take time off or run out and do an audition or or get an acting job and go away you know you you could come back Uh, and then around 2010 about 10 years ago I got offered a job at a very you know very nice private school with a performing arts program 
but it was the kind of job I had to commit to, you know. It was it was a very nice job, very well paid, got all the holidays, you know. I just thought I can't I can't take this and then be running out and going yeah. to auditions. So at that stage I kind of went, no, okay, that's that's the end of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you grieve at all over that? Because I know some of my friends who have decided no more auditions, no more, you know, going for grandmothers when I'm only yeah. 35 <laughs> have felt a great sense of relief from that. Yeah, I'd say that's probably my experience too. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no regrets. Uh, my, my husband's an actor, so he he will probably act until he drops, you know. He still has the fire in his belly. I don't. Mm-hmm. I still enjoy it. I still love to go and see the theatre, yeah. you know, but I don't feel like I need to be out there mm-hmm. acting. When you look at your time on a country practice – like, how do you look back on it now? How do you feel about the show all these years later? The reason it still resonates with people is that it was made with a lot of love and there's a lot of heart to it. And looking back, I find that interesting because it was such a big deal here at the time in the sort of mid to mid-80s to early 90s. And you, you look at what was happening in America and it was all like Dynasty and Dallas and, you know, Greed is Good and, and it was all nasty and whereas country practice was so kind of pure and wholesome and and lovely and it had a really good heart and I, I guess that's the way I'd I'd like to look back on it. So Kim, fashions of the field. This is a spectacular episode actually for fashions. It really is. This episode is peak woolly jumper. <laughs> and they're spectacular jumpers. They're all jumpers I'd wear today. I think my favourite actually was from the insignificant D-plot of The Runaway. Kathy loans The Runaway a very striking yellow woolly jumper and I want that <laughs> woolly jumper. Um, Kim, you know what I'm going to nominate as the fashions of the field peak? Could it be somebody's hair? Somebody's Yes, it is hair. I love it. Well, let's start with Dr. Terrence's hair in this episode, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Is it, was there any particular scene where the hair was especially – because it doesn't actually change that hair. It doesn't move. It's wonderful. It's just so thick. And it's. I love the way we see it in various shades of grey. And I would also like to point out that I think Dr. Terrence gets more attractive as he gets older in this series, having watched a little bit of episode one tonight to prepare for us chatting. There's a swimsuit scene in episode one. What? <laughs> Do you not know about this? I can't remember this. He gets out of the river in his speedos. Dr. Terrence. He sure does. I mean, let's be honest, we love him even more now after we've e-met him. I'm less inclined to lust after him in a pair of speedos, though. <laughs> oh, Kim, I, 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 don't, I don't think that my blood pressure can handle seeing him in speedos <laughs> in episode one. Kim, so obviously Dr. Terrence's hair is my fashions of the field, but I've also got another hair-based suggestion, and that is that amazing orange bow that Donna wears before she dies. I think it's just one day, but she has three costume changes in that one day, and she's wearing a bright orange bow in the first few scenes. And you know what? We also have some um, Polaroids of her costume checks from that day that we'll post on our Facebook page. Kim, on that note, it's time for us to wind these fun times up and send our dear listeners to see Dr. Terrence in his speedos because I will have found it. (laughs) I will have watched and found it and put it on Facebook by now. I want no part of this. (laughs) 
Oh my goodness, this is so bad. This is what women have felt like. Yes, we are objectifying him. We are as bad as men objectifying women, Mm. right? Well, I am. You're being very polite. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Kim, let's, let's say goodbye to this episode before things become really embarrassing. You can check out the Fashions of the Field. Head to our Facebook page, which is a country podcast. We're also both on Twitter. We constantly tweet inappropriate photos of Dr. Terrence. You um, constantly <laughs> tweet inappropriate photos of Dr. Terrence. I'm at Melanie Tate if you want to see those inappropriate um, photos of Dr. Terrence. And I'm at Kim Lester if you don't want to see those. In, although I might retweet some of them. You retweet Maybe. all of them. You stealthily lust after him. Make sure you subscribe to A Country Podcast on your podcast app. And if you have the option, post a review because we love reading we them. We love reading them so much. Which episode will we be doing in two weeks, Mel? We're actually going back to season one, Kim, and we're going to be talking about episodes three and four. It's called A Town Tragedy um, and it's controversial. Kim and I really disagree about a moral issue in this episode so please go and watch it and please agree with me (laughs) Um, and um, I'm so excited about this we're going to be chatting to the man behind the music this music Mike Pajanic the composer of a country practice theme as well as all sorts of famous themes like Home and Away etc A Country Podcast is a Taster Media production big thanks to Nate Edmondson and not to mention of course Mike Pajanic for our theme and a shout out to Shez for making us laugh so much at a photo of her crocheted Dr. Terrence doll you rock Shez <laughs> bye bye when A Country Practice emerged onto the scene my mother at first she was she was reluctant to let us watch it because she had heard that an early episode had dealt with the terribly taboo subject of teenage sexually transmitted diseases. But finally, and thankfully, she relented and we used to watch it as a family and she herself became a big fan. And on those special occasions, like, uh, say, Simon and Vicky's wedding, she would even go so far as to go and buy a couple of Mars bars and cut them up up on a plate and we children used to sit around and eat them and and join in on the celebrations.